Well, this morning I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. Sermon this morning is entitled Reassuring the Saints. <clears throat> Hebrews 6. We'll be looking together at verses 9 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, and there's an outline on the back of your worship guide if you'd like to follow along together this morning. I want to open this morning by uh, reading an excerpt from a letter. This is written by a Christian who says, During my teen years, I had almost no assurance of salvation. I had mean, no, no confidence that I was in Christ. Uh, no comfort that I was truly a believer. Goes on and writes, however, however, over time the Lord began to change my heart. I couldn't point to the exact day and moment I felt confidence in my salvation. I don't have an incredible conversion story like I had heard and read about from others. I just knew I believed in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And yet, I had no idea if that was enough to be truly saved. I felt like I needed to do more and hated whatever sin I saw within myself, believing it was evidence that I couldn't possibly be saved. I'd spend every night, kneeled in agonizing prayer beside my bed, sometimes for hours confessing and repenting of every sin I could remember. I'd rack my brain, trying to remember anything I'd done wrong or any good I'd failed to do. And while prayer brought some relief, it wouldn't be long until the doubts and fears arose again. Was I saved? Was there any way to know for sure, and would that knowledge even comfort me? He goes on and writes, Assurance in the life of the Christian is the knowledge that our salvation in Christ is certain and true. Not just generally, but for me personally. This leads to joy and courage and boldness to live for Jesus Continually comforted by the fact that He is with us moment by moment. For those who lack assurance, they're liable to spend much time in anxious thoughts, riddled with fear, confusion, and doubt. If you've read anything about the Protestant Reformation, you know that although this wasn't Martin Luther's letter, it was very similar to things that he would write. See, he understood the law of God, and he understood the condemnation that that brought far better than most creatures, in fact. And in the awareness of his sin and his guilt, he understood that no matter how hard I try to be faithful, I cannot be faithful enough. And it was when he was encountering, for the very first time there in the Greek language, working through Romans and translating, he came to verse 17, and he read, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And that was the moment that he was converted. It was the free message of the gospel when he realized that 
the guilt that he had, the weight that he experienced was in fact accurate. It wasn't uh, a wrong perception. It wasn't a wrong feeling. It was, it was a correct understanding. And yet the answer could not be found within himself. See, there was nothing in Luther that he could possibly do to make himself right with God. Rather, it was credited to him, the righteousness of God, on the basis of faith. So we begin to talk about the assurance of salvation. This is the confidence as a believer that you, in fact, possess that salvation. It's the confidence to know my soul is at rest. It's well with my soul because my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and now I bear it no more. That means I, I don't have to pay the penalty for that sin any longer. And so when you think about assurance, this is not only knowing that Jesus is a great Savior, but that He's my Savior. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the per personal assurance of salvation. To know that you, in fact, benefit from this salvation, that you are joined to Christ by faith. And the assurance of salvation is the privilege of every believer. See, God has actually designed it for your comfort and for your joy. He wants you to be confident in the work that he has provided and in his promises that you would actually know and be assured in all of your sin and failure that you are Christ's and your soul is secure. Well, the author of Hebrews today is turning to this very matter. And if you've been with us here in the flow, you know we need this relief. Allow me to summarize briefly where we've been and, and we'll see how this section fits and, and what a refreshing um, word, like a, a, a drink of cool water on a hot day would be, maybe, or, or a warm cup of hot chocolate or cider on a cold day. This is just refreshing to our souls. See, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, as you remember, the author began to talk about the greatness of the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. He said he's unlike any human priest who's merely a human because not only can he be sympathetic toward us in our weakness, but he's not a sinner. And he doesn't die. He lives forever. He's the exact kind of priest, the exact kind of savior that you and I need, one who will live forever, one who never gets tired, who doesn't get sick of our sin. And in fact, this priest sacrificed himself on our behalf. And he begins to do a little exposition on this priesthood of Jesus. And in verse 10, he begins to talk about how he's, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then right in the middle of this explanation, he stops and he says, we need to have a digression. We need to have a timeout. Picturing this, maybe in, in class growing up, you had that situation where you had a teacher that would be lecturing the class and at some point got a little bit fed up with the shenanigans and just said in the middle of class, Time out. I need to give everyone a little bit of a lecture here. Okay, I need to warn you. You're not going to graduate. Uh, you're not going to pass this class. Um, you need to pay attention to what it is that I'm saying to you. This is very important. And then they resume with their lecture. Well, in a sense, that's what the author has been doing here. He was beginning to speak about Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek. He was going to get into some deep theology, and he's saying, I need to stop and address where you're at right now as listeners. And so in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5, he gives uh, really this sober uh, statement saying that you've become accustomed to hearing God's word and not being changed by it. 
And he says, that's a real problem. You become lazy, dull in your hearing. You're getting used to taking in sermons and not being impacted by them. You're getting too used to opening up your, your little scroll in your parchment and reading the word and taking it in and gaining some knowledge, but not actually being affected by it. He says, in fact, at this point, your Christian progress with how long you've been in Christ should be a lot further than you are. And you guys are stunted in your growth. You're spiritually immature. saying you should be teachers by now. And instead, you need someone to go back and teach you the ABCs. That was that word in the original, the ABCs of the Christian life. You've lost ground. You were making progress, and now you're regressing in your walk. So what does he tell them in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6? You need to leave the elementary doctrine and you need to pursue growth, right? And so we, we looked at that passage and we said, whether you would say this has been a year of spiritual growth for me, or this has been a year that's been really difficult and not been a year of growth, it's the same instruction that you're to pursue it. And he reminds us in verse three that, that when we pursue growth, we're actually dependent upon God to produce it for us, right? God is the one who causes the growth. We don't ultimately cause that. Uh, but we are called to pursue it. And then last week, we came to a very, very, very sobering few verses. It was verses 4 through 8 where we read about how there are those who will abandon the faith, and when they leave, they will leave never to return again. Those who have all the trimmings of Christianity, those who hear the gospel message, those who have some emotional experience, perhaps a profession of faith, those who are in and among the people of God, those who partake of the Lord's Supper, those who've been baptized, and then they walk away from Christ and they never come back. And so the author is warning them because he's saying it's possible that that dullness of hearing is going to lead to something that you're not going to come back from. It's possible that, that this regression that we've been seeing for the past year could actually lead to apostasy where you abandon your profession of faith and you walk away from Christ altogether. So you say, that's a, a heavy warning. It was a heavy passage. And some commentators would say that that section of verses was a harsh word. You say, I read that and I, I think it misses the point. It's not harsh at all. He's not rude. It's not insulting. He's loving. He's loving God's people enough to, to warn them for the sake of their souls that they need to be attentive and spiritually watchful. And what was all this supposed to do? What was to stimulate spiritual attentiveness? Right? This whole section is, is to get you to pursue the Lord by the grace that He supplies. And so His goal is not to disrupt a believer's confidence or assurance, but rather to make sure that it's anchored to Christ Himself, to remove any false assurances, and then to strengthen faith in the right place for assurance. So, if you were motivating someone who was struggling in the Christian life. And they needed this warning because they'd been regressing for the past year. What would you say next to them? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think we tend to think, well, I would, I would pile on and double up the warning. Right? I would say, and if you don't listen, it 
Let me tell you again how bad it's going to be. I'm just going to repeat how bad that warning is, how severe that is. Well, not this author. He doesn't want to warn them and walk away. He wants them to be motivated to pursue Christ, not out of a slavish fear, but out of great confidence in what God has done for them. See, he's not whacking them again and again and again to get them to pursue growth. He's letting them know that the the seedbed here of spiritual regression is one that you need to take very seriously. But in fact, what I want to use to motivate you is confidence in the promise of God. And so the motivation and the grounds for obedience and progress is not slavish fear, but confidence in God's grace. And so um, I, I kind of frame this up as a, a tender reprieve after a strong warning. That's how this comes when we read it. Uh, it's going to be a refreshing word. And the outline for the passage this morning is going to be two gracious reprieves on the heels of a strong warning. True Two gracious reprieves on the heels of a strong warning. First, he gives an affirmation. and essentially says, we think you're saved from the fruit that we're seeing. Secondly, an encouragement. We want you to endure and gain full assurance. That being said, let's read the passage before us this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to begin back up in verse 1 and read down through verse 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. There's that sovereign grace of God. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being accursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, the passage before us this morning, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Two gracious reprieves on the heels of a strong warning. The first here is an affirmation. The author begins here, and, and what he wants to do is he wants to let them know That although he's warning them against backsliding that would have no end until ultimately falling away from Christ, he doesn't want to imply anything further about them than what he intends. In other words, he's issuing this very severe warning, and then he doesn't want them to walk away with the wrong impression. Namely, that he's actually concerned about that right now in their spiritual lives. 
begins in verse 9 and he says, though we speak in this way. There's a strong adversative contrast in the original. So what is he comparing that to? Well, the contrast is verse 8. So verse 8, we talked about this ground that receives the rain. That's the blessing from God. If it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless ground that is near to being accursed and it is to be burned. The ground is going to be burned up. We're talking about eternal judgment in hell there. That's the burning. And so he's saying now, but unlike that ground that's going to be burned up, even though we speak or even though we speak thusly, that's not the case with you guys. And he transitions his use of language. Verses 4 through 8, he's talking in the third person. Now he goes back in verse 9 to talking directly to them. Right? So he kind of stepped outside and said, there are people who will fall away. Now I'm going to speak directly to you, and I'm going to use you language again. And I'm going to say, in your case, I'm actually confident that's not going to happen. Now this is not a, an idle threat. You know, I was thinking about this in parenting um, it's like when I sit down with one of my children and I share with them, uh, your behavior right now uh, will cause you to be incarcerated one day if you don't stop doing it. That's not an idle threat. If you actually do this as an adult, we will lock you up. Mommy and daddy will only come get to see you on visiting hours. Am I actually concerned that we're on that path right now? Well, no. I think there's still time. There's still hope in your case. See, the author is, is not just issuing an idle threat here about people who lose their salvation. Um, he's saying it actually happens that people make a profession of faith in Christ that's not genuine, and then they fall away forever. That happens. And he's saying, but you know what? I'm not actually concerned that that's you guys. I'm not concerned in your case. I'm not concerned that your profession was phony. I'm not concerned that you're about to backslide away from Christ. Rather, I want to shore you up. And so look at what he refers to them as. That we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Beloved. It's used 61 times in the New Testament, only once in Hebrews. Right? This is a tender spot. It's a tender moment. I just, I just gave you the strongest warning I've given you in the book, and now I'm going to remind you, you guys are the loved ones of God. Right? Beloved immediately comes to mind. It's used in the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God's loved son. And now, if you're in Christ, you're one of God's loved ones. Loved by God and loved by his people. And so he's immediately giving them a reminder of their identity in Christ. This is family of God language. This is the, the reality that the God of the universe actually has set his love upon you. Just take a side moment here and, and think about an implication of as you minister to others within the body of Christ, that you administer in this way. I mean, he wounded them, right? He dealt a blow to expose what needed to be cut out. But then what does he do? He comes back and he, he binds up the wound. Right? He's ministering here in, in tenderness and in mercy. On the one hand, he's saying, you're dull of hearing. 
You're acting like spiritual babies when you should be mature. You're years behind. You're still in the fundamentals. You're still in the ABCs. We, are, we all said, it doesn't feel good to be called a little kid when someone says you're acting childish. And he's telling them point blank, you guys are acting spiritually childish in verses 11 through 14. So he's, he's wounding them by not pulling any punches, by giving them the truth, by telling them exactly the condition of their spiritual state right now. But then he comes around and he wants to make sure to not leave them in that spot. I was thinking about the Pharisees this week. What would they do? I mean, they're going to bind up heavy burdens on people's backs and then do what? Not my problem. I'm not going to use a finger to help lift that burden off. You understand the, the grace here is this man is ministering to the church. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm going to tell you exactly where you're at. And then I'm going to remind you of your, your identity in Christ, that you are a loved one of God. My friends, this is pastoral care. When you minister in the body and you come alongside someone, Galatians 6, and they're in sin and you go to help them, you bear the burden with them. That's what Paul says. And when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love, to bear that burden with them. And so he's entering in, he's encouraging them, and he says, I can call you beloved, I can call you God's loved ones, because we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. See, he, he's not thinking, you know what would motivate God's people is if they're all afraid that they're not really saved. That's how we'll get them to persevere in the Christian life. That's how we'll get them energized. Fear. No. It's the exact opposite. He said, I want you to have assurance. I want your, your motivation in the Christian life here and your encouragement to come from assurance. So he says, beloved, I'm calling you that. Why? Well, because we feel sure of better things about you. Your faith has been accompanied by the visible demonstration of fruit. Now, when he says we feel sure, um, I'm sorry, it's very anemic. The, the word is persuaded, convinced. I would mark that in your Bible. It's stronger than a gut feeling here. That's not what he's talking about. This is, this is the language that's used where you've taken all of the data, you've considered the data, and now you've formed a conclusion that you've landed on from the data. So he's utterly persuaded. He's convinced. Much stronger than a feeling or a hunch or a gut instinct. And so while we've been hearing, in a sense, from the author of Hebrews, it's damning to think that you're saved when you're not. It's damning to think that you're saved when you're not. Now he's saying it is damaging to not think that you're saved when you are. Right? It's damaging to not think that you're saved when you are. And so he says, you know what, actually on our part, we know you guys, and we're convinced that you've been born again to a living hope. We're confident that you guys are saved. Why? Because we've, we've seen the things that belong to salvation, the things that accompany salvation. We know what it looks like when someone gets saved, and you guys have all the evidence of those who've been saved. What is it that he's seen? Verse 10. This is what causes him to be convinced about their salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. This is the grounds of the argument. For our confidence. Here it is. God is not unjust so as to overlook. So why is he saying that? When you think about it, you read this letter, you're sitting there as it's coming. 
Uh, we don't know who the author was, right? But they all did. Well, someone who'd been among them. It's coming from a, a pastoral friend of some kind with authority who just said, guys, I'm disappointed that you're not growing the way you ought to be. You're acting like spiritual children. You're regressing in your walk with Christ. Well, that would tend to take a believer, particularly with a sensitive conscience, to feel discouraged. Right? To perhaps feel even a bit despairing. To begin to wonder maybe if, if um, God is really for me. If, if maybe what I thought I experienced in salvation isn't really the case. I just got warned that there will be some people who fall away from God. And when they fall away, it's going to demonstrate that what they thought they had was not really the real thing. And so he's reminding them when he says God is not unjust, that God is faithful. He's saying, I don't want you to be unsettled that if, if you're trusting in Christ, God will be faithful to reward you in the end. You will inherit eternal life. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You might have bouts of failure, but you will persevere because God is righteous. And He will not forget your work. Your work and the love that you've shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, if you were with us in 1 Thessalonians, you immediately think, that sounds familiar. That's exactly what Paul encouraged that little church in Thessalonica with when he said in chapter 1, verse 3, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Same kind of language here. These are the things that accompany salvation. Uh, in fact, he's, he's giving the identification uh, of the things belonging to salvation when he says your work and the love that you've shown. The love that you've demonstrated, the visible love. The idea here is that you were serving right when you got saved and now you are still serving today. When you first tasted of these things, you began to serve God's people, and now today it's still present in your life. And there, he says it, it was demonstrated, it was shown, so it was, it was visible, it was known among God's people, their works of service toward one another. We don't know exactly what was going on, but certainly as we read about later on in Hebrews that there was the seizure of property that was taking place. There was no doubt physical needs among God's people. Uh, where people needed sustenance, they needed their rent paid, they needed food put on the table. Certainly there were spiritual needs that were abounding. And so what we see is that this author had seen them willingly meeting the needs of others as God would enable them with an attitude of love. And that for him was an indication of salvation. That's an indication that you're saved. So when you begin to think about assurance of salvation, your assurance is not grounded in the works that you do. It's not even grounded in your faith, as we're going to see in a little bit. But it is visible. It is visible in the works that we do. Think about it this way. Romans 5, 5 says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So if you've been saved, 
You didn't get a little thimble of God's love, right? Or an eyedropper. You got his love poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. It was lavished upon you. Uh, The picture there is that it would have been poured out and overflowing. There was a bountiful supply. And so when you think about uh, love, certainly we love because we were first loved, but but exegetically in the New Testament, you know what? Love is connected to even more than an understanding of God's love for us. It's actually connected to regeneration. Love is connected to the new birth, the new life. I'll ask you this question. Can you be saved and not love God's people? Can you be saved and not love God's people? What's the scripture say? 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever. Anyone born of God loves his people. On the flip side, 1 John 4, 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. My friends, there's no such thing in the Bible as an unloving Christian. They don't exist. Not because you haven't tried hard enough to be loving, but because it's, it's part of being born again. And so you can talk about love. You can actually stand in a pulpit and preach about love. You can have artwork in your home that has love written all over it in pretty letters. Not actually do it. But Christians love because it's in our nature. You can't help but love if you've tasted of this work in your life, if you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, the, the, the orientation of your life prior to Christ is focused on consuming for the sake of self. And when God regenerates you, you immediately are drawn toward the needs of others. And I was thinking through examples of this in scripture. You remember the, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16? Right, jailers were not known in Rome for their compassion. He's got Paul and Silas in the inner part of the prison. They're singing at midnight after getting flogged. The prison doors open in the middle of the night. The jailer says, time to kill myself because they're going to kill me later anyway, and this would be a lot less painful to just get it over with. They say, hold on, we're all still here. He says, man, I need to find out how to get what you've got. You've been singing all night and rejoicing. So they go have a Bible study in his house in the middle of the night. Then Acts 16.33 says, he believed, and then immediately he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. So he, he had them there with none of their wounds bound up when he needed them to preach to him. They preach, he hears the gospel, he gets saved, and before he can even go get baptized, he needs to take care of their wounds. is what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, the love of Christ controls us. He said, 2 Corinthians 5, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. My friends, Jesus was a servant. Mark 10, 45, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus. And what is he going to be? He's going to be the servant. He's going to be the one who comes to, to actually minister to the needs of other people. Rather than to be ministered to. 
And so the author here says, you were serving the saints, and it's something that you're still doing now to this day. And so I would ask you this morning, an honest question, do you love God's people? Do you love God's people? Do you merely tolerate God's people? I just ask, how is love operating in your life? Do you show up at church and think little of concern for others? How you might minister to or bear needs of other people? It's your goal to leave the assembly as quickly as you possibly can before bearing any burdens of those in the congregation? Do you actively seek out to find out how your brothers and sisters are doing that you might pray for them earnestly before the throne of grace? Are you willing to meet needs in the ministry even when it's not convenient or it doesn't fit your preference? My friends, if you see the evidence of love within you, not in perfection, but as the gravitational pull of your life, that is evidence of the new birth. It's an evidence that God is at work in you, and that's what the author is seeing here where he's saying, the reason why I don't think you're going to apostatize isn't because you're loving. That's not the grounds. The reason why you're not going to apostatize is because you're Christ. The grounds is his work. But how I'm confident that I know that he worked is I see love, and love is a sign of regeneration. It's a sign that you've been born again. Friends, I would say, hear me gently but seriously on this. If you don't see the evidence in your heart of love for God's people, then you don't have biblical right to assurance. It's not something that you just eventually grow into. The Bible would say you're not not saved. You don't have confidence that you're saved if you don't love God's people. Because the truths of the gospel have not taken root in your heart. And it doesn't matter really how great you are at preaching and teaching. It doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge you have. 1 Corinthians 13 is pretty clear to the value of all of those things if it's not united by love. Attending church is an evidence of salvation. Millions of unsaved people go to church every week. It's love for the brethren that gives you confidence that you're new in Christ. And in fact, John, when he was writing his epistle specifically on the matter of assurance, says in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we've passed out of death and into life. We know that we've been born again. Why? Because we love the brothers. You see what a, what a help that is? If you're saying, I think I've professed faith in Christ, But at times I doubt whether or not I'm saved. Do you love his people? That's not a natural desire. You love his people. That's an evidence of his work in you, his grace. In fact, the church testifies to the love of God according to 1 John 3, 18. So the idea here is that this is something that God produces in his people. Now, I love the the order that this author has said because... Uh, The church, particularly um, three decades ago when the seeker-sensitive movement began, uh, started to get weak on this issue, and confusion came into the church. Uh, We stopped calling people lost. We stopped calling people unregenerate. We stopped calling people unsaved. We started calling them unchurched. And so now the unchurched need to become church. That was the idea. So it wasn't any longer that those who were dead in their trespasses and sins needed to be born again. 
And so then the, the ministry model went, we take people who are unchurched, we need to get them into church, and then once they're in church, we keep them there by getting them plugged into serving. So that was the language. Are you plugged in? Do you have a spot where you're plugged in? Are you serving? Even the idea that, that first you attend, I remember seeing the steps, right? First you start attending, and then we need to get you serving. We get you serving, then you stay. That's the key to staying in church is serving. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's a misunderstanding of the evidence of Christianity. My friends, your relationship to God is not based upon your works or even your works of service. Your relationship with God is based upon what Christ has done. And you don't maintain that relationship through your works. But the idea that people somehow just need to go from being unchurched to being in church and then start serving completely misunderstands the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm alarmed. Every week almost I'll have a conversation with someone who professes to know Christ, and I will ask them to articulate the gospel, and they're unable to do it. How did that happen? Well, if you just need to go from being unchurched to being church, and then you need to serve, we can just skip right over regeneration. We can skip over the new birth. And so when you think about how it is that you have a church of people who serve God's people willingly and joyfully, it's not through guilting people into serving. It's not through having a little program that plugs people in. It's simply through preaching the gospel. And then as God's people are saved, they're now drawn into a loving relationship with one another where they want to serve. And that's dependent upon the power of God, not the wisdom of man. See, that's what that author saw. He saw God's people loving, them, loving one another in that way. And so he's saying, I have assurance that you guys are saved. And so first he gives them this affirmation in verses 9 and 10. We think that you're saved from seeing your fruit. And let that be an encouragement to you. If you see love for God's people in your heart, that has been produced by God. Secondly, he gives them an encouragement. The encouragement is that, that he wants them to endure and gain full assurance. And he's using this we language, so uh, obviously there's other people ministering along with him. It says in verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope unto the end. So we long for, or literally we wish. So if I offered you this morning three wishes, you can't wish for any more wishes, right? That's always against the rules. What would you wish for? The other here is wishing for. Literally, he's pining for this. That, that each one in the congregation, so he's not, he's not just interested in a few here, or the body as a whole, but each one is the idea that, that he has a burden for everybody in the church to reach this full assurance of salvation. What's the pastor want to see? Each one of God's people progressing in the faith. What should each parent want to see? Each one of their children progressing in the faith. Every Bible study leader, everyone in their home group progressing in the faith. Each one of us toward one another. 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's emphatic in the original. We desire each and every one of you to show this same earnestness. What is this earnestness? Well, this is diligence. It's zeal. What is he talking about when he says the same earnestness? The same as what? Well, he doesn't specify, but I have a hunch here. I think it was the earnestness that they had at first. 
saying, I don't want you to lose the first love that you had when you responded to the gospel. You know, when someone gets saved, typically there's a great earnestness in pursuing the things of the Lord. Everything is new and fresh. It's one of the things I love about being around new believers. <laughs> they're reading the Bible and they're just struck. Every verse. Man, did you read for God so loved the world? Doesn't you say he loved the world? He so loved the world. Man, that's, yeah, that ministers, that's good for me to hear again. And it says the death certificate is nailed to the cross forever. It's gone. The, the whole certificate, the whole thing is just nailed and it's gone. My name is in the Lamb's book of life. It's there forever. God wrote it. He's the one who did it, not me. I didn't write my own name in there. You can't do that. He had to write it. He wrote it. It's irrevocable. I'm going to heaven now. I've been given new life. I was thinking about when I was, when I was in college, I had relationships with uh, two believers. I had a best buddy and then my now wife, and both of them were new in Christ. And uh, the humble Christian that I was, uh, you know, I couldn't believe how bad their theology was, both of them, because I'd grown up in the church and had pretty good teaching. And uh, it was such a grace in my life to interact with both of them because what I found was their appetite and their hunger to know what God said was indicting to me because they were so eager to learn. And every truth they heard, they thought, I need to go out and radically apply it. Right? Even at great personal embarrassment or cost at times. Because I read it in the Word, I heard it, I believed it, okay, I got to go do it, and there's not a whole lot of, of, of resistance yet. I'm not sophisticated in how I would excuse it. I just hear it and I do it. I hear it and I do it. So he's saying, I want you to have the same earnestness, the one that you used to know. John Newton talked about this newness, and he he called it the, the golden hours of Christianity, uh, those early expressions of faith. And it was interesting because he talked about how, how joy-filled they were in those golden hours, but then he said, it's not mature yet. It feels really good, but it's not mature. It hasn't really been tested. It hasn't really had a struggle yet through a whole lot. And so the author is, after here, is, is the same earnestness you had originally to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Not just the the early happy feelings in those golden hours, but the mature faith that's actually learned to endure and come to full assurance. He's saying, I don't want you to let the zeal fade. Persevere to the end. Have full confidence that you're in Christ and that he is yours. And so as a believer, if you don't have assurance, it's something that you're to aim for. You're to aim to be convinced that you know you are Christ's. Paul would say to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's he saying? He's not saying that salvation is a process. But he's saying your own understanding of your salvation is a process. What's the process? Well, I've got to take God's word and I've got to examine myself and I've got to understand is what I think I've experienced genuine. Is, is the Spirit of God testifying, Romans 8, that I am in fact a child of God? Salvation is not a process, but I mean, assurance of salvation may very well be. And so he says, you're to gain assurance. Now, how do you do that? It is in the truth. And in fact, he says that this is so that you may not be sluggish. It's that word of, of dole of hearing again. 
So the purpose is I'm, I'm trying to stimulate you to keep growing in Christ so that you don't become ineffective in your walk. You don't become dull of hearing. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This idea of faith and patience is a faith that endures. This is a, a faith that has become mature, a faith that has become robust. Literally, the, the idea there is, is um, a type of faith that has uh, learned to come under and weather a storm. To put it this way, it's remaining tranquil while out, awaiting an outcome. It's steadfastness. You think about the Christian life, in many ways, it's a life of delayed gratification. It's a life of waiting. A life of faith is saying, God has promised me these things that I'm not yet laying hold of in my life. But the blessed hope is coming, and that's the one to whom I'm looking. That's the one to whom I'm waiting Oftentimes we get discouraged in the Christian life. This is a reminder here that endurance is a normal and expected part of the Christian life. In fact, that idea of, of patience there is, is, is one who's not vexed by waiting. It means that when difficulty and headwinds come against your Christian life, what you find is that that doesn't cause you to shrink back. It causes you to persevere in the grace of Christ. And so what he's talking about here is, is all those who belong to Christ are going to endure. They will persevere. There's a future forward-pointing dimension to all of this. What does it look like to persevere and have a mature hope? Hebrews 4.14, it's to hold fast our confession. Hebrews 3.14, to hold fast our confidence. Hebrews 3, 6, to hold fast our confidence. The whole idea here is, is simply learning to trust Christ no matter what comes against that confession. So I want to take just a moment here and explain how this connects to assurance. When you think about a mature hope, you're not to be asking yourself if your faith is strong enough. I right, you read this, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, it's easy to think, do I have enduring faith? Is my faith strong enough to maintain until the end? I like how our Scott Clark puts it. He says, faith either exists or it doesn't. Either have faith in Christ or you don't. The question is not how strong your faith is. He says, do you trust in Christ as your righteousness alone? I did not ask if you trust enough, but only if you trust him. When it comes to assurance, faith is a binary operation. It either exists or it doesn't, full stop. There's no degree of faith when it comes to justification and assurance. Does faith grow? Yes, it does day by day, but that is the fruit of justification, not the ground of assurance. So my friends, when you begin to think about your assurance of salvation, the Hebrews here were not to be thinking that their assurance was based in or rooted in the work that they had done or the love that they had or even the faith that they possessed. Assurance comes from the promise of Christ being a faithful Savior. 
And so even in your faith, it is not ultimately your faith, but the object of your faith who saves you. If you begin to question whether your faith is strong enough or fervent enough or faithful enough, if you've been diligent enough, if you've loved enough or if you've served enough, you will be discouraged and on the brink of despair. Question for your assurance is, do I possess faith in Jesus my Savior and is my hope in his faithfulness and not my own? My friends, the writer of Hebrews here is such a good pastor. He brings the sober-minded warning to cause anyone who, who is not actually standing firm in Christ to question whether or not they know him appropriately. And then he brings the reminder, by the way, your standing before God has nothing to do with your faithfulness, but everything to do with the faithfulness of Christ. Next week, he's going to begin to ground the faithfulness of God in God's promise to Abraham. Will you pray with me? Lord, you've orchestrated salvation in such a way that, uh, Lord, not only are we not able to earn your favor, but we're not able to keep ourselves in your love. Uh, Even that is a work that you do. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that we would know, uh, as your people, even everyone in the room, the joy of assurance. Or as the hymn writer said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Uh, Lord, the idea that Uh, The confidence in belonging to you is not something that originates with us. And so, Lord, we praise you. Uh, We're going to praise you for all of eternity uh, for the work that you've done in salvation. And uh, we pray that you would fill us with great comfort and confidence. Lord, help us know how to encourage one another in the weariness and difficulty of the Christian life uh, to look to the author and perfecter of faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.